Well, good morning. I'm Shane Wanmaker, one of the pastors here, and it is a joy to be with you this morning. See, look at that, connecting all the dots. Um, we are T-minus eight days until Christmas. And if that's shocking, you still have time. If it is um, a, a, an anticipated time, good for you. You can have joy all week as you await uh, Monday, where if you are like me, you are going to have a joyful experience of seeing what everybody got for Christmas. Because as my buddy asked me the other day, hey Shane, how are you, are you guys almost done with your Christmas shopping? I said, we'll have to ask my wife. I have no idea. So on Christmas, I'll be just as surprised as my kids will for what they got. Uh, anyone else in that boat? Don't, don't elbow them. Just, uh, okay, very good. Very good. Uh, with it being eight days until Christmas, that means it's seven days till our Christmas Eve candlelight service. This year, Christmas Eve is on Sunday, so we're going to do two services, one in the morning at 1045 and one in the evening at 4 p.m. That way, if you have somewhere to travel to and you want to come celebrate with us that morning, you can get on the road, be somewhere by dinner, or if you uh, are going to stay in town and you want to uh, bring all your family and friends, you can join us in the evening and be uh, home in time for dinner. Also, this season, we are doing a Christmas offering for Operation Christmas Child, our special pack. If you remember, in October, we packed 2,600 boxes that go to special areas around the country that are difficult to get in, whether it's because of customs or because of the culture and religion of that country. Uh, we packed 2,600 boxes, which is the equivalent of $52,000. If we want to repeat 2,600, that is our goal uh, to bring in. But whatever is brought in, we're going to divide by $20, and that's how many boxes we will pack this year. That $20 uh, covers all of the items in the boxes, as well as the materials and the transportation of the boxes into the hands of a child that will hear the gospel, and it can affect the child, their family, and their entire community. So we uh, ask that you pray about giving to that. There's envelopes on a, your seat or the seat by you. You can drop a cash or check in there and put them in the offering baskets located at each door. Or you can go online and select Christmas offering and give that way. Michael asked me to mention what I saw all week and over the past couple weeks. We have partnered with uh, the Christmas Boot Drive. One of our elders uh, oversees that. And over the past uh, several weeks, we have had members of our body shop, wrap, and distribute these boxes in our community. Uh, there were over 200 boxes and, and gifts for the children distributed this, this year, and 60-plus were done by members of our own body. And so thank you to all who served and, and ministered within our community over this holiday season, may God use your efforts and the interactions you had as you delivered and made a special uh, personal touch with these families. May it bear much fruit this year. Well, this morning, uh, we're in week three of our Advent series, and we are taking a look at God's relational presence uh, throughout history. We started two weeks ago with Michael talking about God's presence in the garden, how he created Adam and Eve, and everything was good and set up for success. But then Adam and Eve messed it all up, 
rebelled against God, and they got exiled from the garden. Last week, Ken picked it up and talked about God's presence in the tabernacle and in the temple and how God was among his people, and they had to learn how to live with the holiness and presence of God in their midst. But sadly, as Ken ended last week, we see the glory of God departing the temple and moving east. This morning, we're picking up and we're talking about God's relational presence in the prophets. And early on in my faith, I was lucky enough to have people surround me that wanted to invest in me, disciple me, and answer a ton of questions that I had. Because as someone that has an analytical mind, a mathematical mind, I just wanted things to make sense. And the one thing that didn't make sense was how can I trust this Bible that was written so long ago by so many different people, translated, copied, over and over, how, how can I know that what it says is true? Especially in the Old Testament. And these people who surrounded me and discipled me uh, answered my questions, gave me some resources, and one of the best resources they gave me was by a guy named Josh McDowell. And Josh McDowell, in his book, A Ready Defense, just took, uh, took me through a journey of why the Bible is unique. And why the Bible is unique is because it was written by over 40 authors who had all different walks of life, were in all kinds of different moods and geographical locations. This Bible was written on three different continents in three different languages in over a span of 1,500 years. And yet, there is unity in the Bible. There is a common thread that we've been tracing from, uh, through Advent, from Genesis to Revelation, God's relational presence, searching for his, human, uh, for his creation to redeem them for his glory. And that helped open my eyes to go, you know what? All this time I thought my answer to someone says, why do you believe, was going to be, God's word says it, I believe it, and that settles it. And that I just had a blind faith and that I would never be able to really respond to someone that, like me, had a lot of questions. But as I, I read this resource, and even uh, this summer as I studied through the prophets, I, I, I connect more and more dots. And I think as we look in the prophets today, you're going to see that there is a good reason to believe God's word is true. And so we're going to take a look at four different prophecies and their fulfillment in the New Testament. And we're going to see how God's relational presence is prophesied and then later fulfilled. And we're going to start with a unique birth. If you, and, and these are very well known. Um, Isaiah 7.14. The prophet Isaiah says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Well, when you look in Matthew chapter 1, you see Joseph is betrothed, is engaged to Mary. He finds out she is pregnant. He decides that he is going to quietly divorce her, and an angel of the Lord shows up and explains what is happening, that God is doing something amazing, that Mary's birth, uh, the, the baby that Mary is carrying is special. 
and that she is going to give birth to a son. And Matthew says all of this was told so that the word of the Lord would be fulfilled. Matthew sees this interaction of the angel and what is going to happen through Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah, this unique birth. But even more so, we, we see that the prophets talk about the specific location of the birth. In Micah 5.2, it says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Later on in Matthew chapter 2, um, the, the Magi arrive in Jerusalem. They've been following the star from the east, which you'll learn more about next week. And as they're following the star, they end up in Jerusalem. And they walk in and they start inquiring about where is the one born king of the Jews? Well, this gets the entire town in an uproar because another king is a threat. A threat to Herod, who is powerful and ruthless. And Herod assembles all the religious scholars in Jerusalem and says, Tell me, where is the Messiah to be born? And all these religious leaders quote Micah 5.2. So Herod brings in the Magi and says, Hey, go search out this king and let me know when you find him so I can come worship him as well, which we know he wasn't going to. And what's cool is they go to Bethlehem and find Jesus, just as Micah had predicted. The prophet Micah told the location of the prophesied Messiah, and it was as it was told. We even get snapshots from the life. Here in uh, Zechariah 9.9, says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is all fulfilled in Matthew, what we call Palm Sunday, as Jesus uh, sends his disciples ahead into a village and says, go in there, you will find a donkey with a colt tied to it. Get it and bring it to me. If anyone asks, say, the Lord needs this. And they do as they're asked. And it's just as Jesus has said it would be. And Jesus rides in, and this is where they throw down their garments and they cut branches and what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. And Matthew says, this all happened to fulfill the words of the Lord from the prophet Zechariah. Over and over we see an Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in the New Testament. In Isaiah 53, uh, this is such a, a pivotal and important uh, passage in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah itself. In Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4, says, Surely he took up our infirmaries, infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. 
He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Isaiah 53 reads like one of the gospel accounts of the suffering of Christ. And we see in the gospels, especially Luke 23, where this is fulfilled. Dr. Constable actually says most of the approximately 80 quotes, references to Isaiah in the New Testament, come from this chapter, Isaiah 53. It's the most quoted and alluded to Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. Why does this matter? Because Micah, Zechariah, and Isaiah ministered between 740 A.D. and 500 A.D., What they predicted, what they prophesied, was over 700 years, 500 years before it happened. Now think about that. 700 years ago today would have been the 1300s. That would mean someone in the 1300s could predict and prophesy what would happen specifically. Location, uniqueness of a birth, uh, snapshots from their life, and the suffering that they would endure for a specific person, all talking about the same person. The Bible is so unique. It connects these dots and paints a picture of this one that is to come, this Messiah that will be born in a unique way, that will live a life different from anything else, suffer and die a painful death, and will redeem his people by his blood. When I put all this together, it makes me understand and and live more confidently. The prophecies of the presence demonstrate the Christian faith is reasonable and can be lived confidently. This is what the people discipling me help me see. That I don't have to just say, "I, I live by blind faith. No, God is so good. He gave us his word. He has woven it together in such a way that he could use those 40 authors on three continents and three languages over 1,500 years to accomplish his purpose of communicating his grand theme of redemption through his presence. Presence that we've seen in the garden, presence that we've seen in the tabernacle, the temple, that we've seen prophesied here, and that will be realized in a person next week and even in a second coming in the future. From Genesis to Revelation, we see God's relational presence. And that should allow us to live out our faith confidently. And in the prophets, we find three individuals who collectively live their faith out confidently. Their names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And their Hebrew names mean God is gracious, There is none like God, and Yahweh helps. These three men, you you may not recognize their names uh, by their Hebrew names, but you may know them by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there is so much loss by not knowing their Hebrew names and by calling them by their Babylonian names, because as you look at the story of these three men, their names are almost an outline of their life. And that's what we're going to trace uh, this morning. In Daniel chapter 1, we're introduced to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, uh, Michelle, and Azariah. 
and they have been exiled. They are part of the elite from uh, the Jews that have been taken into captivity uh, up to Babylon, and they have been conscripted into the, uh, the institute to refine these men in order to be used by the king in his service. And so there's a three-year process that they're to go through. They're supposed to be given special food, special instruction, and they're supposed to be prepared for the king's service during this time. But as they enter the service, Daniel stands up and does not want to defile himself with the food that is being offered uh, by his, his supervisors. So he goes to them, and he asks for special uh, privilege to not eat what they eat, but to eat a diet that will not defile him uh, for his Lord. And because God is gracious, Hananiah's name in Hebrew, God is gracious, he uh, allowed that supervisor to, to lend his ear to him and give him a 10-day trial. And at the end of the 10 days, they saw that these four men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were in better condition than all the rest that were eating the king's food. And so they let them continue with their own diet. And as they went through this three-year uh, term to, to prepare for the king's service, Daniel 1 says, To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds, which will play greatly uh, in, in the book of Daniel. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. There was something about them that was greater than all the rest that he interacted with. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. We see here at, at the beginning of Daniel, Hananiah's name being played out of God is gracious. He was gracious to these men who are in captivity or who are in exile, and God's favor remains with them. They continue to see his presence. But later on, this will play out because the, the role Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah have uh, comes with the cost of people being jealous, uh, with people wanting what they have, the prestige and honor they, they uh, uh, have from Nebuchadnezzar, they, they want. And so they set out trying to find a way to bring them down. And they see their opportunity as Nebuchadnezzar uh, puts up a statue, 90 feet tall and 90 feet wide, and has this whole process that at the end of the process, everyone is to bow down and worship that statue. But three of them won't do it. And so some of their co-workers go to Nebuchadnezzar and tell them, hey, those Hebrews won't do it. Well, we've seen God being gracious and giving him favor with the king and the officials, but in this instance, it angers Nebuchadnezzar that he is being uh, disobeyed, that there are people that won't do what he has determined that he wants done when all this music happens. And he brings them to him, and he threatens them with their life. He says, we're going to do this again right here in front of me, 
we're going to let, let the, the instruments play, we're going to let the music play, and at the end of it, you better bow down, or else you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? These three are face-to-face with the most powerful person on the earth, a ruthless dictator who cares not about them, who wants them to change their allegiance. He wants them to bow down to his image or die. And he even puts out uh, the challenge, who could rescue you? What God could rescue you from my hand? Because I am greater than all else on this earth. Put yourself in their shoes. What would be easier? I mean, you know he's going to do what he says. You know no one there is going to stop. In fact, the people that probably put you in that place are there watching, hoping for what he's threatening. What will they do? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. They say, you know what? There is one greater than you, and that is who we serve. We don't answer to you. We answer to him, and he can overcome you in this matter. That's confidence. But this is the clarity. But even if he does not, they know God can do it. They know God has the power, the ability to overcome even the fiery furnace, to overcome the powerful king that's in front of them. But they also know that may not not be part of his plan. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. We won't do it. Whether it costs us our lives or God rescues us, we will not serve your gods. Why? Because as Michelle's name says, there is no one like Yahweh. There is no one like our God. And we bow to no one and nothing other than our great God. And they stand for what they believe in. They stand for who they believe in. And they stand for the one whose presence they have experienced, that they can look back, that delivered his people out of Egypt, that were among them in the tabernacle and filled the temple with glory. That is who they worship. Well, this doesn't uh, set very well with Nebuchadnezzar, but he does learn that you can change their names and their locations, but not their allegiance. You can take them out of Jerusalem. You can take them out of their land. You can even rename them for your own gods. But with these three, you will not change their allegiance. And that leads to a hard question. When the heat is turned up, is your allegiance to God up for grabs? When your comfort is threatened, when your safety is threatened, when your stuff is threatened, where your power is threatened, 
when your relationship is threatened, is your allegiance to God up for grabs? <clears throat> for these three, it was not. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar got so angry, he said, fire that furnace up, and they heated it up seven times more than normal. They had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego tied up, bound up, helpless, uh, locked up, and they took the strongest of the men in their guard to carry them up to throw them in the furnace. It was so hot that the people transporting them up to the furnace, each and every one died, but not these three. Now, I would love to tell you, and then they just walked down as everyone was dying at their feet, but that's not what happened. Because as they were tied, they fell into the blazing furnace. As their people died, they still went into the furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked the advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty, he said. Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. The, the binding that encompassed them has been undone. They are free. They are walking around. They are not dead. All those people that went up with them are dead. But God protects them, sustains them, gives them oxygen somehow in the furnace, and is with them. And Nebuchadnezzar says, the fourth looks like a son of God's. Many commentators and scholars believe this is a pre-incarnate Christ, that these three experienced God's relational presence in person in the furnace. They had stood for him. They refused to be defiled by those around him. And even in the face of death, they stood. Their allegiance held. What's crazy to me is God did not keep them from being punished. He didn't just make the king die. All right, you're done. You're free. Go. He did not save them from being bound. They were still tied up by the strongest of, uh, of the guard. They did not, uh, God did not deliver them from the furnace. They still went in and stood amongst the flames. But they were not alone. God was with them. He sent the pre-incarnate Christ to be with them and sustain them. And Nebuchadnezzar couldn't believe his eyes and called for them to come out and declared, your God is the great God and is able to rescue you from my hand. What a confession from the most powerful man on earth, realizing he is nothing in comparison to the God of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The experience of the presence demands the Christian life be lived courageously. Man, an application for us 
we have experienced God's presence through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the sealing of the Holy Spirit when we believe in Christ. And the Christian life should be lived courageously. Forsaking our comfort, forsaking our safety, forsaking our possessions, our relationships that might hinder us from, from the Lord, and living courageously, knowing that our God is able to save. He may not in that situation, but even then, our allegiance stands with him, for there is no one like him. Finally, a nod to next week uh, with Ken. God's relational presence in a person John 1, 1 through 5, and verse 14. One of my favorite passages in all Scripture. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelling means tabernacled. Just like Ken talked about last week, when they built the tabernacle, God moved into the neighborhood back then and here through Christ. That's Eugene Peterson's translation of dwelling among us. God tabernacled. He moved into the neighborhood. And many of us have experienced this um, Christ who has come. We have put our faith in him. We believe he did what he said he was going to do and that he will again do what he said he will do in the future in return. And in between now and then, we live courageously and we live confidently knowing that our faith is reasonable and, as we talked about earlier, the arrival of the presence deems the Christian life be celebratory. We can have joy because Christ is with us. That Christ came as a person, as a baby, to fix the problem we had. That constant rebellion that we saw in the garden, and even as God's presence was in the tabernacle and in the temple, and throughout the prophets, and even today, God is with us. And we put our trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins that we can live with him for all of eternity in his presence. Summing it all up, God's relational presence in the prophets demonstrates how we are to live faithfully as we anticipate the advent of the presence of God in a person. Genesis to Revelation, God's presence, we can see it throughout, woven in each and every of the books, culminating in Revelation, when God's presence is here for all eternity, and we are with him. So what do we do with this? A couple next steps. First one is, I'll recognize God's relational presence through the flames of trials I am currently facing. In a room this size, there are there are people facing many different things. And maybe you feel like your allegiance is faltering. Maybe 
you, you feel like giving up or throwing in the towel. I hope you see through the names of the Hebrews in Daniel that God is gracious, that God helps, and that there is no one like Yahweh. And you will stand in the trial, that your allegiance will stay rooted in him. Maybe another next step you want to do is you'll spend this week reading scriptures about the fulfillment of God's relational presence in a person. You know, I gave us four uh, prophecies that were fulfilled. On the Connection Center is one of Ken's resources that has a ton of Old Testament references and their fulfillment in the New Testament. And if, if my story resonated where, um, as I was trying to figure out this faith and, and understand and uh, know what I believed, part of it was understanding that God's word is true. You might want to take this sheet and spend the week looking at the prophecies and, and the Psalms that talked about one that is to come and its fulfillment in the New Testament, knowing that there is only one way all of that could happen, and that's by the sovereign hand of God. And that will bring you joy this season. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word being true, your word being trustworthy, and that we can live confidently and courageously as we uh, bask in your presence. Father, thank you uh, for sending your Son. Thank you for the life, death, and resurrection that we put our faith and stake our eternities on. May we continue to worship you even this morning as we stand and sing. Amen.